Guys, uh, my text this morning is fairly brief for a couple of reasons. Um, it's, it's brief because I'm, I'm trying to get it on one screen, you know, like, uh, and this screen thing is not working. Uh, we're <laughs> I'm going to have to figure out something, uh, another way to do this. Um, but uh, I tried to get it on one screen. But the other reason that it's brief is, is more serious. Guys, there, are, there is language in verses 1 through 10 of Jeremiah 3, language that uh, I bet you parents don't want to have to explain on your way home today in the car to your little ones. But I would urge you to read it later on today. Um, I, I think I can encapsulate the message of the chapter in these uh, four verses but I've tried to avoid um, putting you in an awkward position as a parent with your little ones. So with that in mind, the text is somewhat briefer than uh, perhaps it uh, requires, but we'll see what we can do with it. Now, uh, you follow as I read from an inerrant book, um, from a, a faithful God who says this, And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word endures forever. Guys, before we come to the, to the real heart of this text, the heart of the, the whole chapter really, this, this appeal that the chapter makes, uh, I want to make sure that you understand the distinction that's being made in verse 11 between Judah and Israel. Actually, that's not the only place it's made. It's also mentioned in verses 6 and 7. Did you notice uh, in, in verse 11, uh, faithless Israel has shown to be more righteous than treacherous Judah? Do you know, do you know what that's all about? I mean, you've you got to get that down or you'll, you'll miss most of the text. Let me, let me uh, review just a bit of history with you, and most of you already know this. Just consider it a review. But if not, uh, you, you need to, this will make some sense out of this, which was otherwise perhaps opaque. Guys, um, here's the history of Israel in brief. <clears throat> After a series of judges, the first king that was appointed by the last judge, Samuel, the first king of Israel was a guy by the name of Saul. You remember that about 1 Samuel 9 and following. Saul was the first king. He wasn't a very good king. He, uh, he, he was there for a long time. He, he reigned for 40 years. But he spent most of his time trying to trace, uh, track down David because he was so jealous of David that he wanted to kill David. 
Saul d- uh, died rather ingloriously on the battlefield um, uh, in, in a battle against the Philistines. And um, after he died, of course, the king that followed him was David. David was Israel's greatest king. Uh, it, was, it was David in all of his military conquests <clears throat> that put Israel's enemies to flight. Um, David, of course, has a, 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 an episode that he wants to uh, forget with Bathsheba. But David uh, was a man after God's own heart and was Dave, uh, Israel's greatest king. That's number two. The third king of Israel was, of course, David's son, Solomon. Solomon was known for his wisdom, was uh, sought after by all of the region. He's the one, he's the king that took Israel to her apex in all of her prosperity and wealth. Now, most of you know all that. But from here on, things get really murky. When Solomon dies, the king that takes over is a man by the name of Rehoboam. That's Solomon's son. Rehoboam. Now, that's not a household name, is it? Rehoboam is the son of Solomon who becomes the king of Israel. Rehoboam is young and stupid. He mishandles a situation early on in his reign, and that mishandling of that situation precipitates a civil war. The ten tribes in the north rebel against the two tribes in the south. The ten tribes in the north are led by Jeroboam. Jeroboam and Rehoboam enter into civil war, ten tribes against two in the south, Um, Benjamin and Judah in the south. And the result of that conflict is the splitting up of Israel into two nations. The one in the north of the ten tribes is called Israel. She is overrun by Assyria and dragged into capitulation and bondage about 722 B.C. Her cousin to the south that is called Judah, two tribes, Judah hangs on for another 150 years or so. She, of course, is dragged into captivity by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. But that's what you have referred to in verse 11. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. But Israel is gone by the time this is written. She has been defeated by Assyria, and she is scattered into, to the winds in the north. Now, Jeremiah's prophetic ministry primarily was aimed at the south or Judah who is in that 150-year period where she's still hanging on while her sister to the north, her cousin to the north, has already been defeated. Jeremiah's ministry is primarily to the south. But very interestingly, and you'll notice it in, in verse 12, 
God tells Jeremiah to go speak to the north. To go speak to those scattered tribes in the north. By the way, I don't know of another time that that is done in the book of Jeremiah. Don't hold me to that. But I think this is the only time that Jeremiah is told to speak to the tribes of the north who have already succumbed to her enemy Assyria. On this little section of Jeremiah... God has a message for the tribes in the north. It's a rather simple message. Actually, you could summarize it in one word. It's, um, it's a message for the scattered tribes of the north, and here's the message in one word. Return. By the way, that word, that word return is found some six times in chapter 3. It's found uh, in verse 7, in verse 10, in verse 12, in verse 14, in verse 22, and in verse 1 of chapter 4. One word. The great appeal from God to those scattered tribes in the north is return. Think about that, ladies and gentlemen. This faithless people is being offered a path back to God. God didn't have to do that. He, he, he could have said, um, you bunch of donkeys... You had your chance, and you blew it. So go enjoy your bondage. He could have said that. He could have said that to us. He could have said, you remember what you did back in college when you knew better? But um, that's not his message. His message is return. And therein, ladies and gentlemen, lies hope. It's hope for people who have blown it. You know anybody like that? Now, guys, I'm about to make a leap. Um, it's not a big leap, um, but I don't want to lose you. I am about to equate the call to return with a call to repentance. I am going to suggest to you, and I, there is really no doubt in my mind that this is uh, fair to do, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but I'm about to equate this call to return 
that is found six times here to a call to repentance. That the difference in those two words is merely semantic. And here's why I say that. Here's why I have such confidence in doing this. The Hebrew word translated return here is the word, is the verb shub. It's a word that can be and is translated elsewhere in the Old Testament with another English word. Guess what that is? Repent. So here, for whatever reason, it's, it's the same idea. God issues a call to his unfaithful bride to return, to repent. He is making an appeal to his promiscuous wife. calling her to return he's offering her restoration when he didn't have to so mentioned six times in the text is this call to repentance what is that what is what exactly is god asking them to do um Folks, it's the same thing that Peter asked his audience to do in Acts chapter 2. You remember, right after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has been poured out and Peter is preaching and in the midst of his sermon, he is interrupted and and he says, okay, okay, what do we do? And, And Peter says, repent and be baptized. So the thing that Peter tells his audience is the thing that God is telling this audience And it's the same message that we have for our culture in the 21st century. We're calling men and women to repentance. But wait a minute, Dr. Young. I thought we we were supposed to be calling them to faith in Christ. Well, we are. But ladies and gentlemen, that's the same thing. Those are the two sides of the same coin. No one has ever come to Christ who didn't repent, and no one has ever repented without coming to Christ. Gospel repentance is the opposite side of the other side, which is gospel faith. Okay, then tell me what that looks like. Well, uh, Paul said it to the Thessalonians. He said, you have turned to God from idols. Do you see that? There's this first turn away from that, whatever it was or is. I turn away from that. It's called repentance, and I turn to God in faith. That's repentance and faith. What does it look like? Well, here's what it looks like. Let me read you three verses from 2 Corinthians. Um, Paul is discussing this thing called repentance. And he says, as it is, I rejoice not that you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief, or repentance, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, 
Whereas worldly grief produces death. Now listen to this. He's describing what repentance looks like. This is verse 11. For see what earnestness. Earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. Do you hear it in there? When gospel repentance occurs, the conscience is smitten with a certain horror about my sin. And, and, and did you also notice that he talks about this worldly sorrow that masquerades as if it's the real when it's not? He says, uh, whereas worldly grief produces death, by the way, Jeremiah mentions that too. He mentions it in a verse that I did not read. It's in verse 10. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. You see, what, the, the offer that God has is an offer of restoration upon repentance. A repentance that, that has such zeal, such earnestness, such a being so gripped about my sin. But you see, worldly grief is different. Oh, there's a grief all right. I'm so sorry that I got caught. I'm so sorry that I'm suffering these consequences of my stupid choices. Oh, I, I did that thing, but you understand the reason that I did it is because la, 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 la. But you see, the call of Jeremiah chapter 3 is to repentance, not to that. Um, repentance contains no buts. <laughs> it never says, I did this. But. Repentance awakes, or, or the soul awakes in repentance and says, I have rebelled against the Lord your God. What I did, I did... as a part of my rebellion against God. Now, to the repenting, notice this is another text that I did. It's verse 22. Return, O faithless sons. Look at this. I will heal your faithlessness. To the repenting, healing is offered. 
Do you know what I call that? I, I, I call that hope. Return at once, he tells them. Delays can be dangerous. Return and I will heal you. Ladies and gentlemen, does God really mean that? Does he really mean that after all that I have done? Notice the promise of verse 12. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger. <laughs> Maybe he should, <laughs> humanly. But his promise is that he won't. It's like the the father of the prodigal son, and when the father sees the prodigal son coming down the road, there's no response of anger. Au contraire. He hastens to embrace him. That is said to the repenting. I will not respond to you in anger. Guys, it's our doubts, it's our fears that make us ask, can that be possible? I mean, is that not too good to be true? I mean, even me? (laughs) You don't know what I've done. No, I don't, and I don't need to. But you can tell God. Folks, the only man that remains condemned is the man who refuses to return. Look at, um, I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. Mercy is God's specialty. It is who he is. He delights in mercy, says Micah 7. The Bible never says he delights in judgment or that he delights in power or or justice, but he delights in mercy. Verse 13, only acknowledge your guilt. Own it. No more excuses. Don't call it by another name. Oh, I was, uh, I was just sowing my wild oats. No, you weren't. You were in rebellion against God and his law. And when we know our sin and own it, his promise is that he receives us in grace, not in anger, for I delight in mercy. Folks, it's self-righteousness that will ruin us. It's repentance that will heal us. So so here's what we've got in chapter 3 of of Jeremiah. We have God commissioning and authorizing Jeremiah to make an extraordinary offer of grace. Grace. 
to the guilty, to the fallen, to the exiled, to the promiscuous, to the unfaithful, to the exiled, that exiled northern tribes of Israel scattered throughout Assyria. He says to those people, return. <clears throat> Pardon me. And, 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 and if you do, I will not receive you in anger, for I am merciful and I will heal you. Guys, think about that. That God should extend an offer of forgiveness and reconciliation to the guilty. Verse 8, he says he, he had divorced her. My friends, I, I hope you will take great comfort in the fact that we are being called to repent at all. There is rich mercy in this call to repent. He tells them, I will not look on you with anger, for I am merciful. Guys, I, I can't resist. The, the word that is, that is translated merciful is the Hebrew word hasid. It's a word that's found one other place in the Old Testament. It's found in Psalm 147. And in Psalm 147, the same Hebrew word hasid is translated kind. <laughs> because I'm kind. Don't you love kindness whenever you see it? In its human form, isn't it beautiful? The offended God, the jilted husband, God, is saying, return to me, for I am kind. That word hasid is in the same family with the other word hased. Can you hear they sound hasid, hased? Hased is a word that I have made a whole lot about behind this pulpit. It's a word that's found literally hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Hased. And hased is a word that is translated loyal love. Steadfast love, faithful love. The God who is Hasid offers Hasid. The God who is kind offers loyal love. To the unloyal.
Guys, judgment does not have to be the final word. God is willing to take the promiscuous wife back to restore me even after all I have done. Your pursuit of sin does not have to be permanent. The relationship with God can be restored or begun. And here is the tragedy of the text. You'll notice it in verse 14. Not many will take him up on his offer. One here, two there. There will be a remnant of ones and twos who will return. The others choose chaos over sanity. They choose rebellion over forgiveness. They choose self-destruction over restoration. I want to close by paraphrasing something that I heard this week from another preacher. Guys, we live in an age of um, smartphones and artificial intelligence and space probes into Mars. And yet our problem is the same one that men have always had. We are alienated from God and our consciences will not let us forget that. We can cut ourselves, which we find so frequently in the youth ministries of this church. We can cut ourselves or we can drug ourselves or we can entertain ourselves. We can give a million bucks to our favorite charity or we can serve in a soup kitchen. But the stain of our sin remains. And because it does, death terrifies us. We know that our conscience is not defiled because of something external. It's it's not external things like touching a dead body or changing a dirty diaper or even touching somebody else's spouse. We are defiled by inner things like pride and selfishness and lust and envy and, and fear. And you can smoke as much marijuana as you can buy And you can sniff as much CBD oil as eBay will sell you. And it will not get rid of that stain. The only answer in our modern age or in any other age for that matter is the same. Return. Return. 
repent and believe in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for sinners. Return to the only cleansing agent in the universe that can quiet your conscience, which is the blood of Jesus Christ sprinkled on it. It is that blood sprinkled on the guilty soul that is the only available relief in this life and peace in death. Return, O faithless children. And I will not respond to you in anger, for I am merciful. And I will heal you. Our Father, I pray that you'll use your word to, um, to call to the deep in the soul of men and women that you will assure all of us that our sin has not doomed us. That no matter how unfaithful we have been, there is, there is a gospel call to return, to repent, and to be restored. Father, for those who have that stain still on their conscience, that stain brought on by sin that the conscience will not let us forget, will you show them the beauty of the hope that is available, a hope that is to be found in the free offer of the gospel to all men everywhere, to return, to turn from their idols and turn to the Lord Jesus. Would you um, make that ever more real this morning? Do that for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.